Good morning, New Life. It's so great to be able to share with you this morning amidst all of the um, restrictions that we're under. Uh, God is still on the throne. And uh, I want to talk to you this morning uh, from a story where it seemed that God wasn't on the throne either and what God actually did through that circumstance. And it's the story of Elijah, um, not the good part, which is when he's up on top of the mountain uh, dealing with all the prophets of Baal, but what happened after that. Now, it's a very long uh, account in the Bible and runs through First Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19. And instead of taking the time to read it all, uh, why don't you have your Bible or your phone in front of you and uh, you can uh, follow it through with me as I reference various verses. And then maybe after you finish listening or sometime during the rest of the day, you can just sit down for five minutes and read the whole account and uh, refresh your mind and your spirit in it. But to set the stage, um, by the word of the Lord through Elijah, there had been no rain in the land for three years. And then the word of the Lord came again to Elijah. The drought was about to end. Now, through Elijah, God had been controlling the weather systems of the nation. And in an agricultural economy, uh, that means that God was controlling the entire economy of the nation. And of course, that was an expression of judgment against the wicked rule of Ahab and Jezebel. So uh, Ahab and Jezebel were very frustrated. Uh, they tried to kill Elijah, but they couldn't. And uh, Elijah eventually came out of hiding uh, at the command of God. Uh, to uh, God told him to show himself to Ahab. And in that meeting between Elijah and Ahab, where Elijah announced the ending of the drought, uh, Elijah set up the confrontation, the famous confrontation on Mount Carmel between himself and a grand total of 850 prophets, Baal and Asherah. Now, um, half of the prophets, the prophets of Asherah, were smart enough not to turn up, but he still was facing uh, long, long odds that day. And this story unfolds as one of the most vivid and powerful accounts in the Bible of the confrontation of good and evil. And in it, God miraculously, as you know from reading the story, God miraculously moved to destroy the power of the enemy. And uh, following the intervention of God, when the uh, fire fell on Elijah's offering, God destroyed uh, hundreds of the agents of the enemy, servants of Baal. And, uh, and then Elijah declares that the drought is over. Uh, he says the rain is about to come. He sends, sends his servant to look out for the cloud on the horizon. And as it comes, he, he tells Ahab, you need to get into your chariot and rush back in the city uh, to avoid being caught in the deluge. And uh, then in a, a famous little uh, flourish to the story is that Elijah has a massive spirit of jogging come upon him and he runs ahead of the chariot and gets there before Ahab does. So after all this, uh, it looked like the battle was over, but it wasn't. Jezebel operated in an extraordinary measure of demonic power. And Elijah's victory uh, didn't terrify her. 
Uh, it didn't defeat her, uh, but it did infuriate her. And she orders Elijah's execution. Now, at that particular point of the story, you would expect that what happened over and over and over again to Elijah would happen again. The word of the Lord would come to him. God would speak. He would hear. He would obey. And uh, God's will would be done. But there's no mention, extraordinarily, there's no mention of the word of the Lord coming. And instead, we read in the beginning of chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, we read that Elijah was consumed by fear and ran for his life. It's funny, isn't it? He had had that standoff with the 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, the odds were against him. If the fire hadn't fallen on either offering, Elijah would still have been dead meat. Um, and yet he was so incredibly courageous uh, through it. And yet now uh, at the uh, word of Jezebel, uh, Elijah is consumed by fear and he runs for his life, which teaches us that if faith is the key to triumph over fear, then fear is the greatest obstacle to our being able to hear from God. And even Elijah, when he became afraid, he couldn't hear from God. He lost that connection. Uh, I am sure that God was speaking to him. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that Elijah couldn't hear because the fear had consumed him. And we all know in times of panic that we lose our head, we lose perspective, and uh, we don't hear God anymore. So Elijah, and then, of course, the danger is at moments like that, that we make wrong decisions. Uh, I've always counseled people uh, when you hit the moment of panic or fear, uh, when things suddenly start to go wrong, that is not the moment to start making major life decisions. Just put the rest of it on hold, um, hang on and phone uh, some friends, ask for help, hang on until you get through it. Uh, because Elijah here starts making decisions based on panic. And he flee, flees to Beersheba, the account tells us. Now, Beersheba was about 120 miles south of Mount Carmel. And that's about as far away as Elijah could get from Jezebel without leaving the boundaries of the nation. And then when he gets to Beersheba, he is in a very depressed state. Uh, and he prays that God would simply take him, verse 4. But then, in the grace of God, because God is gracious, even when we're in very low moments, uh, an angel appears to him and feeds him and commands him to go to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. That's very important. Uh, it was about 250 miles further south uh, from Beersheba. And the account says the journey took 40 days. That's a very significant number in the Bible because it links Elijah immediately with the 40 days that Moses spent on the same mountain in Exodus 24 and the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness 500 years earlier. That's where he's headed to the wilderness, to Mount Sinai. The wilderness, both in the original Exodus and in the replay of the Exodus, which is the book of Revelation, uh, the wilderness is the place of God's protection um, between the place of spiritual bondage that we've come out of and the place of ultimate 
deliverance that we're headed to. So the wilderness is an in-between place where there's danger and uh, temptation, but there's also protection. And it in the Bible, in so many cases, because uh, it wasn't just Moses that met God in the wilderness uh, or Elijah, as we'll find out, but God met John the Baptist there. God met Jesus there. God met David that met David there. And so on the wilderness is a significant place uh, where God presses us into himself, but he meets us. Now, the story is about to show us something really, really significant, which is that the wilderness, not Mount Carmel, turns out to be the place of the presence of God for Elijah, even as it was for Moses. and. Uh, when we figure out why that's the case, it will teach us a very important lesson in our Christian life that I think will keep us and help us massively when we're facing times of difficulty. So Moses gets to uh, Mount Sinai, and then for the first time in quite a while, the word of the Lord comes to him. But the word of the Lord in verse 9 1 Kings 19 and verse 9, the word of the Lord came as a question. The question is, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if Elijah had been honest, he would have confessed the truth. Uh, I'm here, Lord, because I've lost sight of you, and I got scared and panicked. But instead, he answers with a kind of a self-justifying complaint. He says, look at all I've done for you, God, and now you've left me alone, and my enemies are trying to kill me. See, through fear, Elijah had lost track of the spiritual reality that had controlled his life. He'd forgotten what God had done. So recently on Mount Carmel, he'd forgotten, for that matter, what God had done when he was fed by the raven. He'd forgotten what God had done when he raised the widow's child from the dead. He'd forgotten all the amazing works of God. Elijah had allowed Jezebel to turn incredible victory into utter defeat. Why? He had believed a lie. And that lie came in when he heard Jezebel's threats. What was the lie? I think it was this. I think that Elijah, I'm sure that Elijah was expecting victory, final, conclusive victory. I mean, he'd been in a battle with Ahab and Jezebel for years. Um, And I think he was expecting conclusive victory to come through what had happened, that manifestation of power on the mountaintop. And when that didn't happen, Elijah was lost. Elijah's identity worked in strength, but not in weakness. That's an interesting point. Elijah hadn't yet found out what centuries later another man discovered, that God's power is manifest in only one place our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. And so Elijah comes to Mount Sinai, verse 11. Now, Exodus 33 tells us that God met Moses on Mount Sinai in the cleft of the rock, and now he meets Elijah. I think, I can't prove it, but I think it was in the very same place. And there were three manifestations of God's power, which were the earthquake, the wind, and the fire just the same as there had been when God met the people of Israel on Mount Sinai five years, five centuries before. But God was in the business of making a point. After the power manifestations came and went, 
Something very different happened, and Elijah instantly knew it. The account is so similar to what happened to Moses in the same place. It's amazing. I am sure the same cloud appeared and the same glory passed by as happened with Moses. And Elijah, just like Moses, covered his face because no one could see God and live. And then God came in what the text calls a low whisper. The Hebrew, of course, Hebrew is a, is a very um, uh, earthy, graphic sort of language, not conceptual like Greek is, and has a very small, relatively small uh, vocabulary. And so the Hebrew phrase here for low whisper is actually a thin silence. It puts a kind of a more concrete uh, idea on it, a thin silence. That's how God came to Elijah in that moment. And then he asked Elijah the same question. What are you doing here? But Elijah hasn't yet got the point because he gives basically the same answer he did before, listing all the righteous things he's done and following it up with a list of complaints, how his enemies are singing his life, how he's utterly alone, and so on. He, he hasn't yet learned what God is trying to teach him. So God does not dignify Elijah's complaints with an answer, a little bit like my wife when I fall into a pity party. Uh, God doesn't dignify our complaints even with an answer. Uh, Instead, God replies with a list of commands. This is what I'm telling you to do, Elijah. Snap out of it. You're to go to Damascus and you're to anoint a man called Hazael as king over Syria. Then you're to find Uh, another man called Jehu, and you're to anoint him king over Israel. And finally, you're to go to Elisha, and you're to anoint him as prophet in your place. And this is the ultimate point of the thin silence. Victory will come, because it does come with God, but it will come in an unanticipated, unexpected way. It won't come through displays of supernatural power. And it won't even come ultimately through Elijah, who is the man of such power. The authority Elijah has held is to be handed over to others. After Ahab is killed in battle by Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad's successor Hazael, whom Elijah anoints, will precipitate the events which end in the destruction of Jezebel and the entire house of Ahab by Jehu, the second man that Elijah anoints. And the prophetic ministry will be carried forward in a new expanded format by Elisha and his school of the prophets and 7,000 others who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Now, the New Testament teaches us that Elijah is a forerunner or a type of John the Baptist. Jesus said in Matthew eleven fourteen, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. But Elisha, whose name means God saves, he's a type of the man whose name means Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Jesus. That's why uh, Elisha is the one who multiplies the loaves to feed the people. That's why Elisha is the forerunner of the one who is 
the bread of life. Elisha is the one who shows mercy to his enemies. He spares the soldiers, the blind, blinded soldiers who are led into the city. He goes and heals Naaman, the enemy general. Elijah was a one-man movement. Uh, he was a man who had to be reminded that there actually were 7,000 others also who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. But Elisha is the one who releases the anointing of God through his prophetic school and becomes a type of the body of Christ, the church. So uh, true victory comes ultimately in the place of human weakness. And because Elijah was identified with strength, God chose others. God used Elijah, but he chose others to implement what Elijah himself believed that he was going to accomplish. It wasn't at Mount Carmel when Elijah was at his strongest. It was at Mount Sinai when Elijah was at his weakest that the purposes of God were released on earth. Mount Carmel, amazing though it was, turned out to be only a preliminary victory. Now, I believe that Jesus understood this, even though his disciples didn't. Jesus performed miracles, which John's gospel says are signs. In other words, they point to his true identity. If you don't follow the sign to the Savior, the miracles amount to nothing. They're temporary. They won't do you any good. Uh, Most of the people who saw and were impressed by the miracles, never got the point of the miracles and eventually walked away. Jesus knew that victory would not come through the power of the miracles, through the power manifestations. It's not that the miracles were wrong. It's just that they weren't the ultimate. They were meant to point to something deeper. I mean, Jesus could have called on his father at Gethsemane. He made this point to send legions of angels but that would not have accomplished the purposes of God. Jesus knew those purposes would be released through a man hanging in utter humiliation and apparently total defeat on a Roman cross. But hanging on that cross, Jesus actually was controlling the entire course of human history. So Elijah is a hero to me. And I think he should be to all of us. He stood for righteousness. His life was characterized by extraordinary displays of faith and faithfulness. And God can come in ways that we expect and pray for. God, God can come and does come in miracles and in healing and in provision and in promotion and in things going right and in churches growing. And we should pray for all those things. But Such things are not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is the cross. And so when the miracles don't happen, or when God moves, but all the things that we hope for as a result of it don't seem to come to pass, then what do we do? Well, we don't lose heart because we haven't believed the lie that without a constant manifestation of the supernatural, we somehow lost the presence of God, the leading of God, the love of God, and the grace of God. We learn instead to listen for the whisper. 
we learn to seek the thin silence. And out of that comes the full release of the purposes of God in our lives. And in truth, God did hear Elijah. Elijah, you remember, had three complaints. And his complaints were these. The people have forsaken the covenant. They have killed the prophets. And my life is over. And God's answer came, and this was pointed out to me initially by Andrew. God's answer came in reverse order. First of all, Elijah said his life was over. But no, God told Elijah, your life work isn't finished. You've got three men to anoint. And uh, God says, uh, I'm sorry, Elijah complained uh, that they killed the prophets. And what happens is that through one of the men that Elijah anoints, he would destroy those who had killed the prophets. And then working backward to his first complaint, the people have forsaken the covenant. Through the second man that Elijah anoints, Elisha, along with the 7,000 others, God will restore the covenant. So God is faithful. His purposes come to pass, but they come to pass not in the way that we often expect and not in the way that Elijah expected. Why? Because God calls us to walk in the way of the cross. But the good news is that the cross was followed by the resurrection. It is a consistent theme, I think, of the Bible that God first gives a dream, then he destroys it, and then he restores it so that all the glory would go to him. He did it with Abraham. He gave a dream. He apparently destroyed it, and then he restored it. He did it with Jacob, Uh, who had to go off to a foreign country and endure all sorts of suffering there. He did it with Moses, who had this amazing call, which was followed by uh, a lot of grief and trial. Uh, He did it with David, who was anointed king as a teenager, then wound up in the desert for years. He did it, as we've seen, with Elijah. He did it with the Apostle Paul, to whom Jesus himself appeared miraculously, and then A little while after, he gets sent off for a period of probably nine years in Tarsus doing who knows what. But in all those cases, and of course, uh, the death and the resurrection of Christ are the greatest example of the dream, so to speak, being given, then apparently destroyed and then restored. And when I say dream... Uh, I don't mean dream in the modern um, motivational speaker, shallow term. I mean a dream in terms of the call of God in your life and what you've heard God uh, telling you to do, what you believe God is going to do in you and through you, and so on. That Even that, God seems to deconstruct and take apart. Uh, if we read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, We get Paul's own take on that process as he walked through it in his own life. This happened in order to teach us greater dependency on God, to make us more desperate for him, to show us that his strength is made perfect in weakness. Um, And uh, at the end of it all, when people look at us, we and they will know it had nothing to do with us. It was all about Jesus and he alone will get the glory. 
And that's how it works. And that's how it worked for Elijah. So when things don't turn out as you hoped they would, and uh, this year started out with uh, uh, superficial uh, prophecies, quote unquote, about 2020 vision and what God was going to do. Well, and then everything seemed to fall apart. Well, you know what? God is at work. Uh, not the way we expected, not the way any of us really wanted, unless you're an extreme introvert, in which case this year may have been your best year yet. But God is doing things. It doesn't matter whether we can see it now. One day when we come through it, we will. The point is to be encouraged when you feel at your weakest. That is totally, totally contrary to what the world and its motivational speakers uh, and aspirational teachers tell us today. Uh, you can be anything you want to be and just put your mind to it and it'll all happen. No. For us as Christians, we walk in the way of the cross. But we find that at the very moment when things are the toughest, you know, and I've had uh, a, a trying year this year, one of our children uh, being di- diagnosed with cancer and her wedding being postponed and trying to get her fiance into the country and all the rest of it. Um, and many, many others have gone through great difficulty, uh, far worse than ours. But God isn't work in the midst of it. He is bringing his purposes through it in your life and in mine. And so be encouraged today when things don't turn out as you hope. Remember the lesson of Elijah. We can feel sorry for ourselves and give up, or we can flee to the place of God's presence and find him there in the thin silence. And then you can know your time of resurrection is on the way. Father, I thank you for the family of new life. I thank you for each person who listens to this uh, message today. I pray that you would strengthen the weary, that you would bring encouragement uh, into our hearts, that those who are at their wit's end, those who have been worn down, those who are discouraged, would find fresh strength. Uh, Lord, I pray that you pour your grace out upon us. We need it. And we need it fresh every morning. And I pray finally, Father, that you would give us confidence that you have not forgotten any of us, that your hand is on each of us, and open our eyes, cause us to remember your faithfulness in the past, cause us to remember your faithfulness in the scriptures, and bring hope by your spirit into our hearts that better days are, are coming. And, uh, uh, Lord, we thank you for your encouragement. And if we are those people who have also experienced encouragement in this year, uh, enable us, Father, to share that encouragement and lift others around us up. So thank you, Father, for your purposes to be fulfilled in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.